Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of their brothers and sisters in Christ from the past. Now, today we're going to get into a beginning overview of church history. And I want to begin by talking about the staggering spread of early Christianity, the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria as they began to move out toward the ends of the earth. One of the most amazing, indisputable facts of ancient history and also a validating fact of the truth of Christianity is that within three centuries of the death of a Jewish carpenter on a Roman cross one day in Palestine, a backwater part of the mightiest empire on earth, the most powerful man on earth, Constantine, who had become the Roman emperor, declared himself to be a follower of that dead Jewish carpenter, to believe he actually had risen from the dead and was God of all the earth. Three centuries How did that happen? How did Christianity make that level of progress in such a short amount of time? And if you think 300 years isn't staggeringly fast to conquer the Roman Empire spiritually, well, you're thinking in 21st century modes in which really our culture, our society, our economy, our travel moves at lightning speeds, speeds that would have been thought of as impossible back in that day. Uh, in which technology makes the world amazingly interconnected. We can see live-streamed events uh, occurring all over planet Earth basically the instant that they occur. Uh, We can get on a a jet plane and be at that location within half a day or even one day at the most. But life back then moved much, much, much more slowly. That's why the Roman Empire lasted as long as it did, over 500 years in the West and another 1,000 years after that in the East. Things didn't change much in a lifetime back then. But the gospel of Jesus Christ moved with lightning speed, relatively speaking. Now, we need to understand this from a spiritual point of view. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. It's really amazing how Jesus can capture the spread of the gospel over 2,000 years of church history, the macro story, and also the micro story of how the gospel kind of takes over the individual life of a single Christian in one homely kitchen parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid in a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, the key uh, word for my purpose on church history here is the word hid. The Greek word is encrypto, from which we get encryption, like uh, spies use or a secret code ring or like the Enigma machine that the Germans used in World War II, encrypto. So the idea is to conceal something, like in a code. Covering it up, the woman took the yeast and covered it up in the flour this huge amount of dough, uh, tucked it away, the yeast, and then worked it through. She kneaded it and worked it through physically 
mixed it thoroughly for a while, and then perhaps put it in a bowl and covered it up with a cloth and set it aside for hours. Now, the yeast permeated the molecular level of the bread, um, spreading little by little, molecule by molecule, uh, by mysterious hidden chemical operation, until the entire batch of dough has been what we call leavened. The progress of the yeast is hidden from the eyes, but the overall effect becomes obvious. The dough rises gradually. It blows up like a balloon. It puffs up with little microscopic pockets of gas, little bubbles of gas, carbon dioxide. And when the dough is baked, the bread becomes fluffy and light. That's what leavened bread is like. Well, that's what happens when the gospel enters a single human soul. If you're a Christian, the gospel entered you, faith came by hearing, and then little by little, your entire life, the entire life of the person, is transformed to kingdom principles in conformity to the King himself, Jesus Christ. Now, there's more progress that the gospel should make in your life, and it will. That's the internal journey of holiness, little by little, spreading from inside. But that's also what's happened in world history as well. The gospel entered the world through Jesus Christ in one specific city, Jerusalem, at one specific time. Over the last 20 centuries, the gospel has permeated the entire world, reaching geographically to the ends of the earth, permeating every political nation on earth, dominating world history in ways that are incalculable. Every single day of human history, the most eternally significant things that are occurring have to do with the advance of the kingdom of Christ from person to person and within the souls of individual persons. But all of that advance has been hidden day to day. That's what encrypto means. It's hidden. It's not obvious. It's not being tracked by mainstream media corporations like the New York Times, CNN, Fox News, or the BBC. As Jesus said, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, John 3, 8. And so it is also with the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. The Holy Spirit is blown like a wind where he has chosen and moved the gospel in every generation as he has chosen. And we can see the effects of it, but we cannot really fully understand the mysterious progress. Another parable teaches a similar lesson. The kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the, the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the ripe grain in the head. But as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Mark 4, 26-29. Jesus made it plain that the kingdom of God advances in ways that man cannot understand. He said, he doesn't know how. Like Paul said, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. The actual way by which the gospel advances from person to person and within the soul of one person is ultimately hidden and mysterious. But in heaven, there will be no secrets. Everything will be uncovered and laid bare. The central purpose of the heavenly review of earthly history is the glory of God in the grand narrative and the tiniest details of that formerly hidden advance, the dimensions and details. When we get to heaven, we're going to review it. We're going to see what God did, big picture, and then at the detailed level. 
Second main purpose of that heavenly review will be the joy and delight of the glorified saints spilling over into eternal worship. We will see every aspect of God's character on display as we look back with perfect clarity on his display of what happened. And we will again and again fall down and worship. What was hidden in this world will be revealed in the next. And the view will be staggering. All right, so in these podcasts, indeed starting today, we need to break this 2,000 years of history into reasonable bite-sized portions, into eras. Church historians usually organize their efforts chronologically and geographically. Chronologically and geographically. Much as Jesus did when he said repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Or again, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's a geographical division. So Christian historians start their works with the perfect life, the atoning death, the bodily resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. Then they continue with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the assembled church in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, resulting in the church instantly swelling in size from 120 believers in the upper room to over 3,000 in one day, the day of Pentecost. That's Acts 2. We should remember church history began with the book of Acts. It goes beyond that, but it starts in the book of Acts, so that's church history. From that point, the historian usually breaks the 20 centuries of gospel advance into smaller eras, giving, giving those eras names. So we name things so we can understand them. The division of time into eras is imperfect because, as Bruce Shelley wrote, great eras do not suddenly appear like some unknown comet in the skies. In every age, we find residue of the past and germs of the future. That's in church history in plain language. People did not wake up on New Year's Day in the year 590, A.D. 590, and say, wow, now we're beginning the Christian Middle Ages. Furthermore, a sweep of half a millennium of church history cannot be reduced to some pithy six-word title or even a summary paragraph without omitting vast amounts of God-glorifying moments. But it is still beneficial for us to have a foretaste of the display of the glory of God that he will reveal to us in heaven when we have limitless time and inexhaustible energy and perfected mental abilities and an omniscient teacher. So we have this foretaste by breaking it up into eras. So let's take the first era of church history and it's going to go from basically 4 or 6 BC whenever Christ was born I would imagine up through the year AD 312. And we could give it this title, Christ Conquers Caesar Catholic Christianity forms. So that's the first era. So about, you know, a little more than three centuries. And we really could zero in on a simplistic kind of summary of this as the battle between Christ and Caesar. Christ and Caesar are fighting for control, control of souls, really, ultimately. The battle between the mighty Roman Empire and the mightier empire of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is one of the greatest displays of the glory of God in all redemptive history. Rome rose from being a tiny village on the Tiber River to dominating perhaps one-third of the world's population. Its legions were the terror of all the earth and spread Roman power to over 
two million square miles. The Roman system swallowed up the best of the resources, the wisdom, the philosophies of the realms it conquered, and absorbed them. It was the pinnacle of what Augustine called the city of man on planet Earth. The vision in Daniel 7 portrays Rome as the fourth beast that came up out of the sea, which was so terrifying it defied full description. It actually isn't, we're not told it's a leopard or a bear or a lion, it's just a beast. And it was, in the book of Daniel, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. Daniel 7, 7. This beast was different than all the other empires that preceded it, and it was given power to wage war against the saints for a time and defeat them. Daniel 7.21 But in the days of that empire, another kingdom was established. It was the stone cut out but not by human hands that rose to become a mighty kingdom over all the earth, a kingdom that would last forever and ever. That's Daniel 2.34 and 44. So that's Rome in the perspective of the book of Daniel. Now, the difference between the Roman Empire and the empire of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is how they essentially advanced. The kingdom of God advances not by killing, but by dying. Jesus made this plain to Pontius Pilate why his kingdom was essentially different from the Roman Empire and, frankly, from every worldly kingdom. When he was on trial before Pilate, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So the essential difference between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Caesar is that Caesar's advances by crushing its victims, by military conquest and by domination. Jesus' kingdom does not advance by his servants fighting, but by a proclamation of the truth. He testifies to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to him. But he's also mindful of the fact that that testimony to the truth will often come at the cost of the messenger's life, beginning with Jesus himself. And so when the time came near for Jesus to die on the cross, he gave this statement in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and, ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So that's definitely true of Jesus. But it's also true of his messengers who followed him. They followed that pattern of self-denying, self-sacrificing love proclaiming the truth at the cost of their own lives. And so that's how the kingdom of Christ conquered the Roman Empire. Not by killing, but by dying. The gospel spread by people who are willing to lay down their lives. Now, in the midst of that advance, a Christian apologist, a defender of the faith named Tertullian, was writing to a pagan who was criticizing Christianity. And he talked about the martyrs, those who are already being slaughtered for Christ. Their blood was being shed by Roman prefects, governors, by, by Roman soldiers, centurions, by Roman emperors. And Tertullian famously said, the blood of martyrs is seed, seed for the church. So the more Christians you kill, the more Christians spring up from the blood. 
So the blood of martyrs, Christian martyrs, was indeed seed for the church through those first three centuries. The kingdom of Christ advanced decade after decade through those first 300 years, often by the blood of martyrs. For the most part, Christians were not directly persecuted over those 300 years. Most of the Roman emperors tolerated Christianity in line with the general approach of the Pax Romana, which tolerated the religions of the peoples they ruled. The Romans were very clever. They were very shrewd politically. A combination of an overwhelming military might with a basically tolerable Roman rule meant for a long reign. People were generally free to come and go as they pleased. They were able to do their economy. They were able to have their religion, to even have their own local rulers, puppet kings under the Romans. The Romans wanted commerce. They wanted tax money. They wanted ultimate control, and they wanted peace. And people were satisfied with that, and accepting local religions was part of that. But having said that, there were occasional outbreaks of persecution that would happen again and again. In the year 64, the city of Rome burned for six days and six nights. And a large part of Rome, the city, was reduced to ashes as a result. It was rumored among the citizens that the Emperor Nero himself was personally responsible for the fire. And hatred of Nero burned among the Roman citizens, as hot as the blaze itself. It seems to deflect this rage Nero blamed the Christians and started a vicious persecution against them, even burning many at stake in his private garden. It was during this persecution that the apostles Peter and Paul, it seems, were both killed, tradition has it. Peter was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord Jesus had died. The apostle Paul, as a Roman citizen, could not have been crucified, and so was most likely beheaded. Many other Christians were slaughtered at that time as well, some by being dragged by enraged bulls or being sewn into the skins of animals and torn to pieces by ravenous dogs. However, such bloody persecutions only happened from time to time. The worst persecutions happened under the reigns of Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180, Decius, the year 249 to 251, Diocletian, the year 284 to 305, and Galerius, the year 305 to 311. Those were the years of their reigns, not of the persecution. So even when overt persecution was not occurring, Christianity itself, however, was seen by the general Roman population to be bizarre and immoral and corrupted. They called uh, Christians cannibals because of the secret Christian ritual of the Lord's Supper in which they were told Christians ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. So I guess that sounds like cannibalism. They spoke of incest of Christians who called each other brother and sister and embraced with a holy kiss. Most amazingly, because Christians refused to worship the gods and goddesses of the pagans, they were called atheists or the godless, amazingly. Since the Romans considered gods and goddesses as supernatural patrons, and protectors of Rome and her cities, Christians were accused of angering the gods and goddesses and thus endangering civic peace. Around the year 177, the anti-Christian writer Celsus 
accused Christians of being hostile to the general welfare because they refused to participate in the various civic ceremonies that maintained the favor of the gods. They were seen as unpatriotic. I think that we American Christians should expect a decaying orbit of, of increasingly uncomfortable relationship with the surrounding culture. I think it's going to become less and less amicable to Christians. But if that happens, keep in mind, it's happened before with Christians. They were seen to be unpatriotic back in the Roman days. It was on this last perspective that Christians ran into the greatest difficulties with the Roman state. Rome considered the emperor to be the embodiment of the spirit of Rome and of the empire itself. So eventually the cult of emperor worship rose, starting in Pergamum, in the life of the year Caesar Augustus, where Satan has his throne, according to Revelation 2.13. Eventually, eventually, this emperor worship became a unifying factor for all peoples in the entire Roman Empire. The peoples could worship their own gods in their own ways, of course, but by the year 249, the emperor Decius declared that they had to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. This action had to be witnessed at the temple, and a certificate of compliance was issued if you burn the incense. But Christians refused to do this and were therefore seen as criminals. The battle between Christ and Caesar came to a head on this very point. Either Caesar is Lord or Christ is Lord. Roman coins from that period celebrated the rise of a new emperor with the words, Hail, Lord of the earth, invincible, power, glory, honor, worthy are you to inherit the kingdom. This kind of language going right to the Roman emperor. These words were exactly used by Christians to worship Christ alone, could never be given to another. The courageous stand made by countless thousands of Christians was essential to their message of purity from the world. This is what it meant to be saints, literally set apart ones to the Lord. Now, in the midst of all those eras of persecution, there are some that stand out. Remember, I've talked about dimensions and details. Let's zero in on one of the details. Let's talk about Polycarp in the year 155. He was the bishop of Smyrna. Uh, it was uh, in modern-day Turkey. He was arrested and brought on public trial before a Roman proconsul in the presence of an enraged mob for refusing to worship the gods. The words of the trial are recorded for posterity, but in heaven the Lord will be able to show it to us all in stunning drama. The climax came when the proconsul offered that if Polycarp would simply swear by the emperor and curse Christ, he would let him go. Polycarp said, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? When the judge threatened to burn him alive, Polycarp said, You threaten a fire that will never will burn, you threaten a fire that will burn for a few hours and then go out. But there is an eternal fire that will never be extinguished. What will it be like to see this courage on full display in heaven, observed by an innumerable multitude from every tribe, language, and nation who had never heard of Polycarp while he lived in this world? but who will be able to sit at the table of heaven and look him in the face while his courageous death is being revealed. How about another story, one of a, a Christian widow, a courageous widow named Felicitas, who died during the persecution under the so-called enlightened philosopher emperor, emperor Marcus Aurelius 
in the year 165, 10 years after Polycarp. She was wealthy and a Christian, a godly Christian widow who had seven sons, and she spent her time doing good works of charity for the poor in the city of Rome. But she refused to worship the pagan gods, and the priests of the temple brought charges against her. And she was arraigned under the orders of Marcus Aurelius before Publius, the prefect of the city of Rome. And when the prefect tried to persuade her to renounce Christ, using first promises of rewards, then threats of death, she refused to yield. She said, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me, I shall defeat you all the more. Now that's got to be one of the greatest lines ever spoken by a martyr in church history. While I live, I shall defeat you, and if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. The blood of martyrs is seed for the church. Well, those are two famous individuals, but there are unknown servants of God that advance the gospel in obscurity. For three centuries, this kind of bold witness advanced the kingdom of Christ, as did the relentless, invisible persistence of common men and women sharing the gospel with neighbors, sharing the gospel with trading partners at the end of caravan routes, sharing the gospel with fellow soldiers in the barracks, sharing the gospel with shipmates on merchant voyages, sharing the gospel with extended family at family gatherings, and countless other stories that we know nothing about. By these means, the hidden yeast of the kingdom of Christ permeated the entire Roman Empire. Each of those unrecorded moments of personal valor and loving persuasion will have their chance to shine in heaven, revealed by God for his own glory and our ever-increasing delight in our heavenly review of history. The personal testimonies of individual Roman citizens and countless slaves will weave together in a display of the full attributes of the triune God. Now, the final and most vicious of all persecutions was initiated under the brutal but effective emperor Diocletian in the year 309. He ordered the army purged of all Christians, church buildings destroyed, the scriptures burned, bishops rounded up, imprisoned, tortured, and executed. After Diocletian died in the year 311, his successor, Galerius, continued this policy of slaughter, but he soon realized his failure. Thousands upon thousands of terrified Christians had, to be sure, recanted, but other thousands had stood fast, sealing their faith with his blood, Shelley writes. On his deathbed, Galerius issued an edict of toleration, and the last and most brutal of all the Roman persecutions came to an end. This brings us to Constantine. In the spring of 312, a young general named Constantine led his army across the Alps into Italy to seize the throne of the empire from his rival Maxentius. As he approached the city of Rome at the Milvian Bridge, he had a dream in which he saw the cross of Christ in the sky, and he heard the words in Latin, in this sign conquer. According to the historian Eusebius, Constantine made a standard for the battle in response to the vision, a spear overlaid with gold with a cross formed by a transverse bar and wreath of gold, enclosing a monogram with the letters Chi and Rho for the name of Christ. Constantine won the battle, gained the power he sought in Rome. He confirmed the edict of toleration for Christianity with his co-regent Licinius at Milan. This did not make Christianity the sole religion of the state that would come later under other emperors. And Constantine himself continued to follow both Christianity and paganism for a while. However, as he continued to consolidate his power and reign over the empire, Constantine became more and more openly favorable to Christianity. 
as Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote, whether he was a Christian from political motives or only or from sincere religious conversion has been hotly debated. Increasing public policies in favor of Christianity under his reign were matched, it seems, with increased private devotion. He had his sons and daughters brought up publicly as Christians and led his family as a Christian man. The Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia baptized him shortly before he died in the year 337. And from the time of his baptism until his death, he never donned the emperor's purple robe again, but wore only his white baptismal robe. If Constantine were genuinely converted, we will see him in heaven, bowing his knees before the true king of kings like everyone else. In any case, the public confession of Christ by a Roman emperor is a clear marker of the spread of the gospel in three short centuries. From the 120 weak and fearful followers in the upper room of Jerusalem to the millions spread throughout the most powerful empire on earth, Constantine and his co-regent Licinius signed the Edict of Milan in the year 313, proclaiming religious toleration throughout the Roman Empire. As we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing there is nothing new under the sun. And whatever it is you're going through, there are Christians who have come before you who have dealt with similar struggles and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will too. We also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do. And they did them for the glory of God. In the same way, God has gone ahead of you and prepared good works for you to do for his glory. Go do them by the same power of the Spirit of Christ that was in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.